Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome, folks. Welcome to another special episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Uh, As you know, I love bringing on a wide variety of amazing guests. And today is also another special episode. Um, I get to introduce you to a friend of mine who I don't get to spend enough time with. But uh, we had this spontaneous meeting. uh, We synchronized on the streets of Los Angeles a few months back, just totally spontaneously. And it was so amazing to meet her. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to share her with you on the Soul Talk podcast. I know today's episode is going to be amazing. I first heard of her and met her through an organization called Transformational Leadership Council. But I also first heard of her through some some of my dearest friends, Ariel Ford and Brian Hilliard, and uh, through the work of Pujya Swami Chidanan Saraswati and and the founder of Palmath Niketan Ashram in Rishikesh. I had the chance to visit Palmath Niketan. I think it must have been in 2002 or three or somewhere in that, maybe it's 2002 when I first went to Rishikesh. And so uh, they do amazing work there. My guest today, author of Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation, Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Welcome. Thank you so much, Kud. It's so wonderful to be together with you. It's great to be here. It was really lovely bumping into you the other day and seeing your, your smile and your radiance. And so I'm really thrilled that we, we finally synchronized. And uh, I have so many questions for you. I want to just dive in. Um, before we dive into some, some nitty gritty questions, I, I would love to find out uh, a bit about your journey. And I'm sure uh, folks listening in may be curious as well. Hollywood to the Himalayas. That's quite... Uh, a trek there. And uh, I'm wondering, how did it happen? What was the journey? <laughs> it's not necessarily a, a typical trajectory. And so uh, tell me, was it yeah. always on the cars? Is something you dreamt about as a kid? Or just, what was the path? How did you get there? I'd love to it, hear about the story. You know, it, it really was a journey of grace because I would love to say, I mean, my ego would love to say, oh, yeah, I dreamt about it as a kid. I was yearning to go to India. I was yearning to be shown a deeper, higher spiritual path. But that's just not true. I mean, my ego would love to say it. It sounds really nice, but uh, that's not at all actually what happened. I grew up in a very 
very wonderful, very normal in many ways, privileged family in California, quite literally in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Literally in Hollywood. Quite literally in Hollywood, (laughs) in the Hollywood Hills. You could look out from our hill and there was Universal Studios. And that was, yeah, that was where we hung out. And I went to school with actors and actresses and the kids of actors and actresses and the kids of producers Mm. and directors and whatnot. So quite literally in Hollywood. And it was a world and an experience of great opportunity, great privilege, great access and availability to pretty much anything and everything that we wanted. I graduated from Stanford University, so I had absolutely the best educationally, opportunity-wise that one could have. And from the outside looking in, you would have said, this girl's got it all. I married a wonderful man. And it just it looked from, from the outside like everything really was, you know, perfect. And yet I was really struggling and really suffering inside. I had experienced a lot of challenge and even great trauma in my childhood and in adolescence and early 20s as the ramifications of that trauma seeped deeper and deeper into my psyche as I was growing and identifying as you know who am I going to be in this world I did what so many of us do in different ways, which is we turn to something that we think will help us ease the pain. And whether we turn to alcohol or drugs or food or sex or shopping, we turn to that which we think will make it better for us. And in my case, I developed a very severe eating disorder And I was severely bulimic in and out of not only eating disorder units, but also hospitals with tubes and IVs. I mean, I was, I never, I never did anything (laughs) half-heartedly. So if I was, if I was going to suffer, I was going to suffer in a way that was going to nearly kill me quite literally. And after several years, again, late adolescence, early twenties of a lot of therapy, a lot of work. I got to a place where I was, I was managing it. I was in the midst then after graduating undergrad at Stanford, I was in the midst of a PhD program in psychology. I was taking 21 units a quarter. I was getting straight A's. I was really on every logistic level managing my life. And I had my you know, my food was being managed. I was feeling better with that. I was managing my pain. I was managing my marriage. <laughs> I was managing everything. And I really thought that that was the, the highest goal that one could have. Everybody I knew was somewhere on the spectrum of managing their lives, either managing well or not managing so well. But it never occurred to me that there was anything beyond 
simply managing your life. Like you manage your stress, you manage your fears, you manage your challenges, you manage your addictions, you manage all these things. And that's the most you can hope for. Nobody ever said to me, hey, guess what? There's something beyond management. There's freedom. It's not just about how can you manage the pain of identifying as this being who was abused and betrayed and abandoned or this being who's got this eating disorder, but rather how can you awaken into an experience of being someone other than the victim of that. That was just not part of my reality at all. So I thought things were good. I thought I was managing everything quite well. And my husband wanted to go to India. He was on a spiritual path. We were, mm-hmm. we were avid travelers. We had traveled quite a bit in Europe. I had traveled a lot there when I was a kid. He and I together had spent a year in Ecuador teaching in between my undergrad and graduate years. And so a couple of years into my PhD program, when he said, let's go traveling, he's like, yeah, 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 of course. And he wanted to go to India. And I only, I only agreed to go to India as embarrassing as it is 25 years later, having now lived there for 25 years and dedicated my whole life to it. I only agreed to go because I loved the food. I was a, I was a strict vegetarian and, and I was a vegetarian with an eating disorder. So there was a lot of control issues around food and the, the discussions that I had with waiters and waitresses in countries where I didn't speak the language about what the sauce was made of or what the stock of a vegetable soup was made of were very long and very stressful. And so when he said India, I thought, well, at least in India, they know what vegetarianism means. And at least you don't have to you know, grill waiters in languages that you don't speak about what the stock or the broth or the sauce is made of. So I agreed to go and had this experience standing on the banks of the sacred Ganga River, what we would call here the the Ganges River, that was unexpected, obviously, unsought for on any conscious level. I was not a conscious spiritual seeker by any means. I was a scientist. I was an academic. And I also always really felt on a, on a deep level, if I ever admitted it, that I somehow wasn't, wasn't cut out for spirituality, that I wasn't quite worthy or good enough or pure enough. I still had this very very deep and pervasive kind of subconscious sense that there just was something not right about me. And so I never was seeking spiritually on any conscious level. And again, because I was an academic and a scientist, that was not even something that was in my conscious awareness. I just thought, well, all right, spirituality is something he does and 
You know, I thought of it much more as his hobby than as something that was a, a deep path for everyone. So we get to India, we get to Rishikesh, which was the first place we went. And I stood on the banks of the Ganga River, having come down just because I was hot and tired and wanted to put my feet in the river. And I had this extraordinary experience of awakening. It was like this veil was pulled off of my eyes and off of every way of knowing that I had in the world. And suddenly I could see and I could see the divinity the perfection of the universe, the oneness, Mm -hmm. the divinity and perfection of myself, my capital S self. And I could see that I was not separate from that divinity, from that creation. It was like in that moment, my heart just exploded and my being exploded and every border and boundary of who I thought I was just exploded. And I was one with the universe, with the perfection, with the divinity. And I burst into tears and I knew on a very deep nonverbal level because I was I was nonverbal for a very long time after that. The only the only thing I could say for kind of days was, oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. Oh my God, it's so beautiful. And but I knew, I knew that I was meant to stay there, that that was where I was meant to be. And so that's how it began. And as the, as the days went by, even just the first week, the first 10 days, I kept having these experiences of the universe just guiding me and of me being able to trust the universe. And so whether it was hearing a voice quite literally a voice that I even turned around to see who had spoken. And of course, no one was there hearing a voice tell me that that's where I was meant to stay, that this ashram Parmarth Nikathan is where I was meant to be to getting my feet stuck quite literally to the ground of the ashram. When I tried to walk out of it. Wow. It, it was it was extraordinary, and, and, and this was just like happening to you, right? I mean, because what's funny is like it's not like you were on a spiritual path before. You go to India for the food, and this stuff just starts happening. Like, what, what did you think when your when when your feet got stuck, for instance? Like, what what did you think? Well, at the beginning, what I thought was, oh, my God, my polio vaccine didn't work or my tetanus vaccine didn't work. Quite seriously, I thought I had contracted some horrible illness Mm -hmm. and that, you know, I'd gotten all these vaccinations and something must have not worked. And I had lost the use of my legs. I then thought, okay, chances are deadly illnesses don't just come on like this. So then I thought, well, maybe my legs just fell asleep because I had just come out of meeting 
my guru, the one who would become my guru for the oh, very so, first time. I so just you, met Swamiji. So, okay. So you had met him. I how, just met him. How did you meet him? So you stopped, but you started having the experiences before meeting him. Yes. Yes. I started having the experiences just on the banks of Ganga. And then one day when I was walking through the ashram, I heard that voice say, you must stay here. Mm. And that took me on quite a journey and an experience of trying to get them to let me stay. And it turned out that in order to do that, I needed permission of the head of the ashram who turned out to be Puja Swamiji, one of the most revered leaders of India, who was out of the country at the time. But they didn't tell me that. They just kept saying, maybe he'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> and and so, so I kept coming back every day. And finally, finally, he came back. And by the way, for anyone listening to this, you no longer need his personal permission to stay. This was 25 years ago, but it does speak to the fact that this ashram is one of the oldest, most revered and prestigious in the traditional Vedic lineage. And you as a random white American with a backpack did not just wander in like it was a youth hostel and expect yes. to stay. Mm-hmm. You, you really had to be, you know, working a spiritual path. And so that was, that was getting left up, up to, to Swamiji to look at you and decide this is, this is a person walking the path or this is a person looking for, you know, a youth hostel. So in any case, he, I finally met him. He finally came back about a week later. How was that that first meeting? Oh, you know, it was extraordinary because because of the trauma I had experienced, I didn't trust myself and I didn't trust the universe. Mm -hmm. And So, of course, I had experienced love, but it was always it was always a sense of a fragile love. There was always fear with the love. It was always the sense of like, don't leave me or, oh, my God, are you angry at me? Or it was it was very clingy, dramatic love wrapped up in drama and when I first met him long before I had even spoken to him, we were just sitting in the room awaiting our turn in a room full of people who had been waiting for him to return and who wanted to come in and get blessings and ask questions or whatever. And as I just beheld him, it felt like I was in this ocean of love. Mm. And that it was this like an ocean without sharks and an ocean without jellyfish and an ocean without riptides and just this never ending, infinite, energetic stream of love that wasn't love directed to a particular being. It didn't matter who he was looking at. 
It could be a young child. It could be an old widow. It could be a Supreme Court judge. It could be his own guy who was coming in and out, you know, shuffling people in or taking care of the logistics. It didn't matter who he was looking at. Mm -hmm. Even in the moments when he closed his eyes, you could feel it. And I just felt like I was swimming in this ocean. And it's funny, Coot, because several years later, a very good friend of mine from L.A. was there visiting once I was you know, living there permanently. And she had brought her, her young daughter, who was about five at the time. And her young daughter announced one day, I need a private meeting with Swamiji. And so I was like, okay, we will get that organized. Mm -hmm. And so we got her taken in for her private meeting with Swamiji. And when she came back, you know, five, 10 minutes later, you can't see me because we're just on audio, but picture my arms out to both of my sides and, you know, kind of making like wave-like motions with both my arms on my sides. And she came back doing that with her arms. And she says, I feel so lovey, 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 lovey. And, she just, and she, she just makes her arms, you know, swimming in her arms. She says, I just feel so lovey, 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 lovey. She says, I don't want to touch anyone. I don't want to take a shower. I don't want to do anything. I just want to keep feeling so lovey, 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 lovey. And that young child is now, you know, 25 years old. But I, I still think about that because to date, it was the most perfect description of the felt sense experience of being in his presence. And it took a five-year-old to put that in words. <laughs> so, so I had this experience of being in this ocean of love. And I told him I wanted to stay. I did not tell him I had been hearing voices, of course. I thought that that would immediately disqualify me from, <laughs> from, from being granted the privilege of staying. Mm -hmm. So I didn't mention that. I just mentioned that I wanted to stay and that I was here with my husband and could we stay? And he said, welcome home. He said, you can stay whenever you want. This is your home. I will be here for about a week and then I have to go out of town again. But you're welcome to stay anytime. I will tell them to give you a room. And so I walked out thinking my husband and I were staying in a hotel behind the ashram. And we had made plans during that interim week when Swamiji was not arriving and nobody could give us any indication on when he would arrive. We had made plans to go up to the mountains the next day. And so I was planning to walk out of the ashram to go back and tell my husband, hey, after we go to the mountains, we can come back and stay in this ashram. And my feet quite literally froze to the ground. And I couldn't, I couldn't walk out of the ashram. Mm. And it was many moments of quite a drama that I, I, yeah, I tell the whole story in the book. I won't tell it here so that, cause it's, it's really funny 
And I want people to be able to read the, the full story and it's in its funniness in the book. But after the several moments of flailing my arms, like an airplane trying to take off in the middle of the ashram, I realized that I could move, but I could only move backward towards Swamiji's room and not forward out of the ashram. And so that was when I realized beyond any doubt that I, I was meant to stay right here and right now. And the minute I made that decision, of course, I had no trouble walking out of the ashram to you know, inform my husband that we were going to stay in the ashram now and we didn't have to go to the mountains. But yeah, it was, it was extraordinary. And so I had all of these, these incredible experiences that made me know this is where I am meant to be and that made me trust the flow of the universe through me that I, who had never trusted suddenly realized, wow, the universe, this divine universe is flowing through me and it just keeps taking me to more and more beautiful places and I can trust it. Beautiful. Wow. when, When was the moment that you knew or got guidance and clarity that you needed to basically move to India and be with Swamiji and do this work? Like, was there a moment? Because I'm assuming it wasn't then. I knew from the moment that I stood on the banks of Ganga Ah. that that was where I was meant to be. I knew I had come home. Mm. I didn't think at that moment logistically exactly what that was going to mean. As I said, I was really nonverbal. It felt like my brain had Mm. just melted into the waters of Ganga. And I was pretty incapable of forming any any real coherent thought or Mm -hmm. sentence. But it didn't matter because as I kept saying, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. Oh, my God, it's so beautiful. So my lack of intellectual ability did not concern me. But there was no room for any any planning or logistics. It just... Mm -hmm. I knew I needed to stay. I mean, and we were we were going to be in India for three and a half months. I had taken a full semester off of school. This was still September. We came in September of 1996 and had wow. tickets to go back in December of 96. So this was still mid-September. So the idea of exactly what this is going to look like was yes. not in my mind. But I knew I was meant to be there. And it only became really an issue when, come December, (laughs) Swamiji says something to me about my tickets and that he would organize a car to take me to Delhi. And I was like, what? I'm not going. What do you mean, Delhi? What do you mean, America? Like, this is what do you mean? Um, I felt like I felt like I was being banished from the Garden of Eden. And... It was, it was just inconceivable to me because uh, it was so clear that that's where I was meant to be, that the idea that he was actually going to 
send me back. It, it was, yeah, literally as though the ground was pulled out from beneath my feet, not just the rug, but the entire ground upon which the rug sat. Wow. So I knew, I knew from the beginning, this is where I meant to be. And, yeah. and, and how long between that moment and you leaving your life behind in the U.S.? Did you go back and pack everything up immediately? Because you also have a husband, right? That's just a, did, a, 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 a side note, just a small factor in the equation. Side, and so, side so what, note. What was yeah. that process? Was it a few years? There's so much I want to ask, but I just want to understand that piece of like, okay, I'm done with America. I'm going to live full time in the ashram. So here in the in the interest of time, here's yeah. what it looked like, because, of course, that which covers many, many, many chapters in a book and that which took years to live, you know, to wrap it up in a few minutes. But I will try. So in the beginning, I was not thinking at all about the rest of my life. It just seemed very obvious that I was meant to be there. But in the beginning, I was assuming that my husband would be there with me. There was never a sense in my mind of, I want to leave him. Rather, because he had been on a spiritual quest, I thought, oh, this is so perfect. I have found the place for him. The dilemma was that I had not taken our unique psychological relationship drama into consideration in that. And because of our unique drama and relationship, there was no way that he was going to come to the ashram or the teacher I had found and make it his own. It was essential for him that his path be his. And so it took him years, years, long after we were officially divorced to finally come around back to Swamiji as a teacher to finally come back to Rishikesh as a place to be because quite understandably, he was the one on the path. He was the one who had been doing the work. He was the one who was supposed to have had this experience. So he was, (laughs) he was, that's mind blowing. Yeah. He was angry. He was jealous. He was frustrated. He was all of these things. And he was tired of having his life revolve around me, which was how he felt it did. And so he did, for example, he did go off to the mountains that first week. I stayed back, which in and of itself was huge because I had had severe abandonment issues having been abandoned quite literally as a young child by my biological father who had called when I was eight and said, I never want to see you again. I had these very, very severe patterns within me of clinging and clinging and fear and had gone from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend, ensuring that there would never be a moment of being alone, that there would never be a possibility of abandonment. 
And the idea that I would let my husband just head off into the random mountains while I stayed back in a place I didn't know and I didn't know anyone and I didn't speak the language was just inconceivable. But that just highlights the power of when you really get connected to your own inner knowing because that which would have been inconceivable 10 days earlier was just the most natural thing. He said, I'm going to the mountains. I am not going to go to the ashram you found or the guru you found. I'm heading to the mountains. And if you want to be with me, you will come. And I knew that I was meant to be there. And so wow. without, without even a twinge of fear or anxiety or clinging, he went and I stayed. And then when he came back about a week later, I assumed he would come around. I mean, I had now yeah, vetted yeah. the ashram thoroughly for a week and was just so excited to introduce him and to, you know, have him move there with me. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, he said, I, I cannot move into a place that you're already queen of. He said, you're already queen of this ashram and I can't live here. And so it was clear that we had our own our own patterns. You know, we got married. I was 22. He was 23. We were we were kids. We had lots of our own issues to work out individually. We had issues in the relationship. And so in any case, he was not going to stay there. I knew that I was supposed to stay. But again, at that moment, I really had just been thinking that we were traveling around India separately, that it, I was still not even thinking about kind of the rest of my life story. It just was so perfect in that moment. And I figured he's going to roam around India, which he did, and eventually we'll, we'll be together. I mean, this is just a phase and, you know, he's got to be with other women and he's got to be angry and he's going to go through this. And Swamiji taught me, just pray for him, just pray for him. And that was, that was what I did. And I, and then in December, he basically said, you know, I'm going to stay back an extra few weeks. Swamiji told me I had to go because I was already registered for school the next semester. And Swamiji made me go back. And my husband said, you know, um, I'm going to stay back an extra few weeks. And by the time I get back, I would like you out of our apartment. And um, yeah, so, so it was pretty, it was pretty clear in that way, what I had never expected that the marriage just was not going to survive the experience that I had had, which was not at all how I had thought from the beginning. So that, leaving things behind happened really kind of organically. It never for me was a moment of feeling like this precludes that. It felt much more like this new experience Mm. is just so extraordinary and so perfect that of course it will flow into the rest of my life rather than force me to make some kind of a difficult decision. And then 
with regard to the the whole rest of my life, I went back in December as Swamiji made me. He said, look, and it was so brilliant because I was 25. I had had this extraordinary ecstatic experience and I forgot that the rest of the world had not had that experience. Mm. And so to me, it seemed perfectly normal that I simply was going to pick up the phone and call my parents and call the school and say, I'm not coming back. And that that would just be normal and that everyone would just, you know, be good with that. And it never occurred to me that, that was going to create a problem, but he knew it. And so he said to me, he said, if you don't go back, people will always say Mm -hmm. she ran away. She had a nervous breakdown. She joined a cult. She was brainwashed. And what he didn't know at the time specifically, maybe he did, but he certainly intuited it was that actually my mom was already prepared to get on a flight with all of the cult deprogrammers and come and rescue her daughter, who she thought had very much been kidnapped and joined a cult. So, So he understood that, having never lived in an American Jewish family. Nonetheless, he just knew exactly how that was going to play out. And he said, if you are going to live here, you are going to live here as a model of someone who has chosen spirituality over the rest. And he said, but that only works when you are renouncing something you have. To renounce something you're failing at is not renunciation. Mm -hmm. So he said, you must go back. You must get straight A's next semester. And you must, you know, do whatever you need to do in the most above board way so that A, everyone can see that you are still totally in your right mind. And that you haven't been brainwashed, that you haven't gone crazy, that you haven't joined a cult. Mm -hmm. And B, so that when you come back, you really can be this model of someone who has made a conscious decision. And of course, incredibly wise. And the other piece, of course, which he didn't tell me, but he has told me since, is Mm -hmm. that he wanted to test me. He said, you know, it's really easy to say you want to live here forever when you're standing on the banks of Ganga. It's a lot different when you're back in your world. And he said, I didn't want you to make a decision from India. I wanted you to make whatever decision was right when you were there in America. And so I have a question question that I think might help those listening. Here you are, you, you, you ended up renouncing the West and you could say America, your marriage, going to India, uh, being in the ashram. And so for those that are listening in and maybe they're 
struggling with something. Maybe it's uh, some kind of attachment, yes, uh, an addiction, a, a toxic relationship that they're struggling with, going back and forth with, no, they shouldn't be in, something that they know is not aligned for them, good for them. Um, I guess I'm going to throw two questions in one. Uh, what can you say about that could help someone let go of a certain attachment, tendency, a t- pattern, an addiction, something that they're holding on to? And... In terms of spirituality, um, this idea that, well, does does spirituality, because I know what some people might be thinking, oh, shit, I have to, like, go to India, give up my marriage, my kids, (laughs) my life. No, no, no. Let me, 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 you know, I'm scared now. And and so does spirituality have to mean we renounce, like, either or, we renounce the West, and then we renounce Hollywood and go to the Himalayas. Can it include both? How does it include both? And, and I'm, I'm kind of throwing five questions in one, but, but how does it include both? And how can someone live in Hollywood and imbibe, feel, live the Himalayas in Hollywood at the same time? So there's kind of a combination there, but I'm kind of throwing that so you can uh, respond how you feel. Beautiful, beautiful and such critical questions. I'd actually like to start with the last question first, just to get it out of the way and ease everybody's mind. So there is nothing in spirituality that says, thou shalt move to the Himalayas, thou shalt become celibate, thou shalt not enjoy a nice hot cup of tea or anything that you enjoy in your life. Thou shalt not have a job. Thou shalt not have a family. No, there's nothing in spirituality anywhere that says anything like that. So, and in fact, even in the, in the Indian tradition, in the Vedic tradition, the Hindu tradition, the scriptures are filled with stories of the mystics, the sages, the saints, the rishis, the yogis, and the vast majority of them are married. It's a very rare and unique yogi rishi who is a monastic, a celibate. Most of them have wives. So even in the scriptures and and even the divine incarnation. Krishna, Ram, I mean, all of the incarnations, or you look at the manifestations of the divine, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, everyone has a a female counterpart. And of course, there's a whole spiritual philosophy to that that I won't go into here, but it's, it's enough to just say there is nothing that says that you have to renounce. My particular life path, my dharma, was to become a monastic in the same way that people who become monks and nuns in the Buddhist tradition or the Christian tradition or in so many other traditions. That's that's our unique life path. But that is not necessary at all for spirituality. Spirituality quite literally means of the spirit. And what it means in our lives is that 
instead of focusing on the materialistic view. See, the materialistic view says, I am this body. I am form. I am a size, a shape, a color, a race, a religion. I am a history, that which has happened to this form. That's who I am, an object, really. And who you are is another object over there. You're a different size, shape, color, different history. I'm a, you know, 1971 small white female version. That's my, my, my the, the American version of that. That's my model. Other people are all kinds of different models. That's the materialistic viewpoint that says that that actually is who I am. And what that does is it creates a lot of empty space in between us. Because then there's me over here, there's you over there. I end where my bones and muscles and skin end. You begin where your bones and muscles and skin begin. Spirituality says you have a body. The body was created into matter in a particular place at a particular time with a particular color. And over the years, it's developed a size and a shape. But that isn't you. That's just the vehicle that you're using for this particular karmic journey. But it isn't who you are. Who you are is spirit. Hence, spirituality. Who you are is spirit. And of course, we can use different words. We can say soul. We can say divinity. We can say consciousness. We can say love. We can say truth. That's who you are. And there's no place that you end and I begin because there are no borders or boundaries to spirit, soul, consciousness, love, truth. And so there is no empty space between us. So spirituality is a commitment to looking at yourself and the world spiritually. It's all it is. It has nothing to do with whether you're married with kids or not. <laughs> it only has to do with your perspective toward the world. And that is something that Everyone of every size, shape, color, race, religion, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation. It's something that everyone can have. That's actually the big motivation that I had for writing my book. Because while Hollywood to the Himalayas is my very particular physical journey, that's not going to be everyone's journey. The vast majority of your listeners, I imagine, may never physically end up in the Himalayas. But that's okay because their mindset, their thinking patterns, their way of living can shift from a Hollywood way of thinking and living, which is really anchored and rooted in that materialistic viewpoint that says you are your body. You are its history to the Himalayan way of thinking, which says you have a body, but you are spirit. 
And that shift in the way of thinking, that material to spiritual shift in our thought process is actually the answer to suffering. It's that which brings us the joy and the bliss and the peace and the freedom that we're looking for. So then moving into your question about letting go. Yes. It weaves right into this because that which I'm holding on to is keeping me from being free. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a grudge, an anger, a pain, whether it's an unfulfilled expectation, whether it's a craving, a yearning, a desire, a longing, if I'm holding on to it, it's keeping me stuck. And the question that we have to ask ourselves all the time is, is whatever it is worth your freedom? There's a great, a great story that they tell of a city in India that was overrun by monkeys, which is a really common phenomenon in India. But Indians being, you know, quite committed to nonviolence, they weren't going to go out and just machine gun all of the monkeys down or put monkey poison out or something. So they tried to develop some way of getting these monkeys out of the city and back in the forest. And they developed this this brilliant way where they took these coconuts and they hollowed out the coconuts. And inside the coconut, they put something that the monkeys love, a sweet, a piece of fruit. But they made the hole to the coconut just big enough for the monkey's open hand to go through, but too small for a closed fist to come out. So the monkeys would stick their hand, their open hand into the hole, grab a hold of the prize, the sweet, the fruit. But then with their closed fist, they couldn't get the hand out of the coconut. Now you would think, well, monkeys, I mean, they're our closest DNA relatives. They're basically us genetically. Surely they would have the intelligence to just let go and extricate their hand from the coconut. Because if you've only got, I mean, if you've got four legs and one of the four has got itself stuck in a coconut, you've only got three legs left. Those three legs aren't going to be able to do a very good job of running or climbing trees with one of the legs stuck in a coconut. So you'd think, well, all right, so the monkeys are smart enough. They would just let go after a few tries, but they actually never did. And it became this brilliant way of trapping the monkeys because they couldn't run, they couldn't climb trees, and then capturing them and taking them back to the forest. And I love that story because it's exactly what we do. We hold on. We hold on to something, an identity, a grudge, an anger, a pain, a longing, thinking that that has within it, that that's our prize, that when we just get it, oh. Mm -hmm. But actually, our attachment to it has just stolen our freedom. 
And when we recognize that, that's what the point of meditation and mindfulness and insight is about, is it makes us be able to recognize what's making me stuck. What is it that is holding me back? What are those things? Let's say someone, someone has a an uh, like a, an, an urge, a desire, you know, mm-hmm. the, cig- the cigarette, that drug, the marijuana, the mm-hmm. alcohol, the whatever, whatever the, the, the impulse is in mm-hmm. the moment. Okay, they might be saying, "Okay, okay, Seth, I get it. You make sense. I agree." But the moment, in the moment when that impulse or that urge arises, intellectually. They understand, but in the body, in it, inside, they maybe not be able to help themselves. What 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 can they do in the moment of that impulse, that desire? Mm. Beautiful. So, in the moment, you know, it's so funny. I'm I'm in the midst of teaching this course on on freedom, a weekly course on. The pathway to freedom. And just yesterday, we we meet every Tuesday. And just yesterday, we were talking about freedom from addiction. And I took them through this meditation, which I know we don't have the time for to do in its entirety here, but I can at least tell you the the teaching of it, which is all urges. All thoughts are actually simply chemical and electrical patterns Mm -hmm. in our brain. That's all they are. And this is why in so many spiritual traditions, we have practices of things like fasting Mm -hmm. or staying awake all night or abstaining, abstaining from sex or abstaining from something else for short periods of time or particularly around maybe certain religious rituals or events or times. Not because food is bad. Of course, we're going to go back to eating again. Food is wonderful. Not because sleep is bad. We're going to go back to sleeping. Sleep is wonderful. Not because sex is bad, especially if you are in a healthy monogamous relationship and you're not a celibate, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, we abstain and all of the religious traditions have this because what it does is it actually teaches the mind that during the day you're fasting, for example, well, your stomach growls. Your mind is like food, 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 Mm -hmm. but you know you're fasting and so you don't eat. And what happens in the mind when it knows it's shouting, eat, 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 and you don't, and yet you don't dissolve, you don't explode, you don't implode, you don't cease to exist, the sky doesn't fall, is you realize, wow, I had this urge, I didn't give into it, and yet I'm still here. The body was screaming to eat. I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm still here. The body was screaming to sleep. I didn't. I'm still here. And it trains you for then later when the urges arise to know, I don't actually have to give in to these. I'm not going to explode, implode, dissolve. The sky's not going to fall. 
Otherwise, when we're in the throes of addiction, there's this sense of gotta have it, gotta have it, gotta have it. And like, if I don't have it, you feel like you're just going to die. Mm. And what all of those practices teach you, they build that muscle, that muscle of restraint. And so one of the things that I would suggest, the preparation phase, of course, is develop a practice of restraint. For example, skip a meal every once in a while. Maybe fast one day a week, or if not for a full day, skip lunch Wednesdays and Fridays or whatever it may be. I mean, see what works for your body. Whenever you go grocery shopping, after you fill up your cart, for every 10 items, when you get to the checkout counter, take one of the 10 items out and leave them behind. Just see what happens when you consciously don't give in to that urge that says, I want this. Every once in a while, set your alarm for four o'clock in the morning and make yourself get up. It will train a muscle of knowing that no matter how much your body or your mind, no matter how many chemical and electrical patterns are saying, do it, eat it, have it, and you don't give in that you're still there. And that'll build a great muscle for you. But in that exact moment when it comes, just watch it. Close your eyes, sit down, close your eyes, and watch it come toward you. Picture it, picture it very visually. If it's a cigarette, picture the cigarette. If it's alcohol, picture a bottle of alcohol. If it's chocolate cake, picture the chocolate cake, whatever it may be. Just picture it literally coming toward you from the horizon. And with your mind, make that visual image keep changing. So just play with it. Move it to the left, move it to the right, move it up, move it down, move it forward, move it back. And just use your mind, make it big, make it small paint it purple, you know, do all sorts of things with your mind to that physical image of what it is you are craving in your mind's eye. And what that does in a very powerful way. Oh, and while you're doing that, sorry, one important point, while you're doing that, be very anchored in your breath. Keep your breath very low in the abdomen. Make the breath long, slow, deep, but right from low in the abdomen, below your belly button. Like feel your abdomen kind of expand like you're blowing up a balloon when you inhale. And then it deflates as you exhale. And you can even keep your hands on your belly feeling that. And anchor in the breath as you do this with your mind. And what it does is it teaches the mind, oh, that cigarette thing, that alcohol thing, that chocolate cake thing. It's just an object. And look, I'm playing with it. I'm making it big. I'm making it small. I'm making it far and near. I'm turning it purple. And it gives you this sense of toying with it, 
playing with it. And then eventually, after you've done that for several minutes, if the urge is strong, it'll take a while. But just keep playing with it. Paint it purple, then pink, then give it some polka dots, make it dance. Just toy with it. And then eventually, when you, when you really feel like, yeah, I've got this thing in the palm of my hand. I'm making it dance. Then turn it around and make it move away from you. And just visualize literally as it moves toward the horizon that it dissolves into the ocean at the horizon of your consciousness. And stay with the breath. Stay with the breath for another few minutes. And that doesn't mean the urge will never arise, but it means that every time it does, you realize it is just a thought. That's all it is. It is just a thought. It's just chemicals and electrical pattern in my brain. It's just a thought. Beautiful. It's powerful, really powerful. In terms of life, how much control do we have of our, over our life? From what you've seen, what you feel, what you believe, is life set? You know, talk about Vedic astrology, astrologers reading our charts. How much of our life is set? How much of our life is predestined? Seems like perhaps, maybe, things that happened to you, you weren't looking, you went to in India, you didn't come back, basically, your entire <laughs> life changed. And so, you know, it, so often, even in self-help, we're talking, you, know, you, you make your life, you create your reality, you make it happen, just visualize it, think about it, create it. Uh, from your perspective, spiritually speaking, how much control do we have over our lives to to create, to manifest what we want, what we think we want. We have full control to create, absolutely, but within, within the laws that already exist. We are not creating in a vacuum. So, for example, there's this thing called the law of gravity. And if I walk off a building, Regardless of how strong the power of my intention or my meditation or my manifestation or my visualization, I'm going to plummet to the ground. No amount of visualization of wings is actually going to make me fly off that roof. I am going to plummet to the ground and go splat because there's this law of gravity. And it trumps, sorry for the, the pun, but it, it, it trumps the power of my intention, visualization, manifestation. And we've also got these things called laws of karma. There's a lot of laws that exist. I mean, I could decide, for example, that what I really wanted to manifest was I was going to be the star player for the LA Lakers. Okay, so I'm five foot three. I just turned 50 years old. I'm about 115, 20 pounds. Um, at this stage of my life, even if I had the best, the best basketball coach on earth, 
there pretty much is no chance in a million years that other than like bring your grandmother to the court day, that the LA Lakers are going to let me play for them. Right. You know, I mean, they, they, may, they may have those days every once in a while, like bring your grandmother to, you know, to the court day or bring your sister to the court day or whatever. But on a normal day and a normal game, there is no way the LA Lakers are going to let me play. No matter how much I train, no matter how much I want it, no matter how much I visualize it. Because the karmic package that my physical body is in right now, its age, its size, its shape, there's no way that I can make that happen. Maybe half a percent more likely than me actually growing wings after I walk off of the top of a building, but not much more. So the dilemma is this idea that we can kind of manifest anything because then, then what you get is you get so much frustration. Why can't I manifest it? Then it's the somehow if I open my eyes from my meditation and there isn't a mound of money in front of me or my husband has not miraculously stopped drinking or doing drugs or, you know, my Parents miraculously have not now come back to life from the car accident that killed them, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. that somehow there's a problem with my meditation or there's a problem with my manifestation. And I think that's a really huge disservice that we are doing to people. What we need to realize is we have the power. You can think of it as co-creation. We have the power to take the beautiful rules of nature and do with them an infinite number of possibilities. So let's say you love summer and you hate winter. And as the summer ends, you decide, I am not going to let winter come. And you stand outside in your bikini, shouting at, you know, the coming Mm -hmm. clouds. Well, The weather doesn't care. It's going to become winter. It's going to snow regardless of whether you're in your bikini or not. The only thing you have control over is can you learn to love the winter? Your power of manifestation is not going to make oranges grow from an apple seed. And to try to use the power of manifestation for that, again, is an exercise in frustration and futility. The power of manifestation is, can I learn to love apples? Can I learn to make apple pie and bring it to others? If for whatever reason I don't love apples, can I invite the local school children to come and to pick the apples with their baskets after school? Can I turn this thing that seems like a problem into a blessing. That's what the power of manifestation does. And the power of manifestation helps us know where we are not limited. So yeah, you don't have wings. You can't fly. I am not going to be a center for the LA Lakers. But we don't have to be victims of our past. We don't have to be victims of our history. We don't have to be stuck in our addictions, in our cravings, in our negative thoughts. We can be free. 
And we have full power to co-create freedom, joy, love, peace in every moment. There is nothing anyone can do to prevent you from feeling peace in every moment or feeling joy in every moment. You have full power over that. I love that, that perspective on manifestation. So, so beautiful. Um, two final questions, Sadly, Really, really enjoying this conversation and just loving, loving your spirit and sharing. Um, over the years, 25 years, kind of a, a personal question. Have you, like, have you ever lost faith? Have you ever wondered, like, what the hell am I doing in India, you know? Uh, uh, have you ever wondered, like, uh, maybe I miss, I miss being in America. Maybe I should go back. Has there ever been a, a moment of wavering, questioning at all? Or has it just been pure knowing? Yes and yes. It's mm. been both. Mm. It's always been pure knowing on the soul level. Yes. But having a spiritual awakening does not automatically render you hormoneless or electricityless or biologyless. And so there have definitely been moments where, I mean, especially I think about when I was probably maybe 31 or so, 30, 31. Mm. And, you know, really typical kind of biological, not quite clock ticking yet, but really that age where kind of genetically as women were supposed to be popping out those babies. And suddenly I was just overcome with this sense of I've got to have a baby. I've got to have a baby. Like I just, I have to have a baby. And I remember going to Swamiji and saying, I've got to have a baby. Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, no problem. We can get you married. And if that's what you want to do. And I'm like, no, I don't need sex. I don't need a husband. I just need a baby. And he looks at me like, who's the scientist here? Like, how exactly are you? Are you expecting to manifest this? So, so but it was, it was a really difficult time because I was just overcome with this sense of gotta have a baby, gotta have a baby. And of course, in the perfection of the universe, God literally sent me this young girl. It's another story, but I do, I do a whole chapter on her in the book. Um, sent me this beautiful young girl who I pretty much adopted and has been my my daughter since then, she came to me when she was four and yeah, she's now, God, she's just, she's 20, she's 23. She's 23. So yeah, it's been such a blessing. But so the universe provided me with that, but there have been moments like that where kind of overcome by that biological sense. I've never had moments of, what am I doing from a, from a soul sense? But I've definitely had moments from mm. that biological sense. Got it. Wow, it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, if you were to reflect on your life, really the final question, 
and everything you've been through and learned and ups and downs, lessons. Um, if you were to think of the three most important learnings, soul learnings, life lessons, that if you could only share these three keys with uh, the next generation that you feel, okay, these three truths would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most, what would the three lessons be? Mm, wow. All right. It's like the genie in the bottle. Three wishes. Um, well, for now, of course, if you asked me next week, they might be three completely different ones. But for the moment, in the perfection of this moment, let's say the first one, and they'll just, they'll arise in the moment as I, as I speak them. I would say, first of all, to recognize that your thoughts are vehicles. I wish I had known this, that every thought you have is a vehicle and it is taking you to a destination. It was a long time in my life before I realized that I had any control over the thoughts in my own mind. And the thoughts in our mind are the steering wheel of our life. What we think takes us quite literally to the destinations of our lives, both the physical logistic destination as well as our own internal mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual destination. And so in the same way that you would never get on a bus that wasn't your bus just because it happened to pull up to the bus stop, don't get onto a thought that isn't going where you want it to go. And if a thought starts to arise that isn't going where you want it to go, just allow it to blow across your consciousness the same way that you would allow a bus to just slow down and then keep going on, you know, wave to it if you want, but don't get on it. Don't allow yourself to get quite literally hijacked by, by a thought. And you have the power for that. Choose your thoughts because those create your future and that which you manifest. And Along with that, I would say number two would be choose love and choose peace in every moment. That's number two. We'll call them both number two, two A and two B. They, in every moment, whatever is happening around you, you can be in love and you can be in peace. It doesn't mean you have to love what is happening around you. But it means that you can, your internal love manufacturing plant does not have to get shut down by something that's happening around you. Someone else's ego, fear, ignorance, confusion, anger should not shut down your internal love manufacturing plant, should not shut down your source of peace and love within you. I think about it like a wetsuit where, you know, when you go into the ocean, a wetsuit doesn't keep you dry. It's called a wetsuit for a reason. You're wet. But what it does is it allows this tiny, tiny 
film almost of water to come in, your body heat warms it. And then you go into the ocean, into this cold water with the warm water that you are in. And in the same way, you may not in any given moment be able to turn the ocean warm metaphorically. You may not be able to turn the entire experience and everyone involved into love and peace. But picture your wetsuit. That's your world. That warm water is your world. And at least make your world, your experience, one of love and peace. Keep exuding it. Keep exuding it. Keep exuding it. And whether it just keeps you in it or whether eventually it ends up impacting others, and it will impact others. I guarantee that. But don't think about it in terms of you're going to change them. Just think about it in terms of warming your wetsuit. And then the third thing I would say is grace doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter. Whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you are worthy of grace. And grace is there for you. Grace doesn't care what you've done, what's happened to you, none of it. All grace is waiting for is for your heart to be open so that grace can flow through you. And so whatever's happened, whatever you're holding on to, let it go. Because that very thing you are holding on to is creating that block between you and grace. It's like Winnie the Pooh stuck in that hole, right? I don't know if you ever read the Winnie the Pooh books when you were a kid, but there's this great, great Winnie the Pooh story where he's, he's stuck in a hole. I don't know why that image just came to me, but it's so perfect. And he's half in, half out, stuck. And he can't get in, he can't get out. Nothing can get in, nothing can get out. And he's stuck. And that which we're holding on to literally creates that in our lives. Nothing can get in. Grace cannot flow into us. And of course, the love and the peace can't flow out. That which you're holding on to is literally this thing that is stuck in the channel of you. Between you and the world. So let it go. Let grace flow in and through you. Let love and peace flow out from you and in through you. And just know, whoever you are, whatever size, shape, color, none of it matters. None of it matters. Grace doesn't discriminate. You are full and whole and complete. Thank you so much. The power of choosing your thoughts, choose love, choose peace. Grace doesn't discriminate. Zadby, thank you. This has been a truly soul-inspiring, heartwarming interview. Uh, I can't wait to dig into your book in depth myself. Folks, you're listening to uh, an amazing podcast episode with the amazing Sadvi Bhagavati Saraswati. Uh, Hollywood to the Himalayas. A Journey of Healing and Transformation, available on Amazon, 
go get the book, check it out. Um, it's been a riveting, riveting uh, journey today on Soul Talk. So I'd be thank you. Uh, what's the best uh, website that people can go to find out about you? Best site? Yeah, the best site at the moment would be HollywoodToTheHimalayas.com. That's HollywoodToTheHimalayas.com. Mm-hmm. You can see everything about the book. You can download some free chapters. Of course, if you already know, as I hope you do, that you want to read it, you, of course, can go straight to Amazon or your favorite bookseller and just search for Hollywood to the Himalayas and get it right away. The HollywoodToTheHimalayas.com website also gives links to my personal website, to the websites of our foundations, to the ashram, so you can learn learn about everything. So I think that's the the most all-encompassing place to go. Awesome, awesome. Before we close, I just wanted to say to your beautiful community that I really would love to hear back from people. I wrote the book for you all. A hundred percent of the proceeds, every single penny of these proceeds go to the women and the girls in the Himalayas. I'm not taking one penny from any of this. The only agenda from my side to write it to spend the hundreds of hours that you know are involved in putting together a book is for you, for your healing and your transformation. And I would love to hear how it impacts you. And there's so many ways to do that. You can write it on Amazon. You can write it on our website. You can send me an email. You can put it in social media, whatever. But please do let me know how it's impacted you, how you have found healing and transformation, because I would really, really love to hear that. Amazing. Folks, you heard it. Check out the book, Hollywood to the Himalayas, A Journey of Healing and Transformation. And let Sadhvi know. Definitely let her know. Sadhvi, thank you very much, everyone. Send me an email, kooplaxon at kooplaxon.com. I would love to hear your key takeaways from today's episode. Make sure you share today's episode with everyone in your life that you feel would be inspired and uh, right with you. Until next week, love now. Big hugs, everybody. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.